presented by Facebook. Hey, good morning, Playbookers. I'm Raghu Manavalan. It's Tuesday. What's next for the GOP and Trump after the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago? It's our Politico Playbook Daily Briefing. The news of the FBI search on Mar-a-Lago, the most aggressive law enforcement action ever taken against a former American president, broke last night in the most understated way imaginable. Peter Schorsch of FloridaPolitics.com just tweeted it out. Quote, Scoop, the Federal Bureau of Investigation at FBI today executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Two sources confirm to FLA underscore poll. In an age where bragging about repertorial prowess is normal, I probably would have put scoop in all caps, Schorsch was charmingly humble. Quote, not sure what the search warrant was about. TBH, I'm not a strong enough reporter to hunt this down, but it's real. It was indeed real, as Donald Trump confirmed within the hour. The former president said in a lengthy statement, quote, My beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, is currently under siege, raided, and occupied by a large group of FBI agents. They even broke into my safe. The backstory, as outlined in a February letter from David S. Ferrero, the archivist of the United States, to Representative Carolyn Maloney, chairwoman of the Committee on Oversight and Reform. Throughout 2021, the National Archives and Records Administration, quote, had ongoing communications with the representatives of former President Trump about boxes of White House records he stashed at his home in West Palm Beach. The NARA recovered 15 boxes in January, including items the agency identified as, quote, marked as classified national security information. The discovery of classified material triggered NARA staff to report their findings to the Department of Justice. And that's when things got serious for Trump. As Maggie Haberman, Ben Protis, and Adam Goldman reported for the New York Times, quote, federal prosecutors subsequently began a grand jury investigation, according to two people briefed on the matter. Prosecutors issued a subpoena earlier this year to the archives to obtain the boxes of classified documents, according to the two people familiar with the matter. The authorities also made interview requests to people who worked in the White House in the final days of Mr. Trump's presidency, according to one of the people. In the spring, a small coterie of federal agents visited Mar-a-Lago in search of some documents, according to a person familiar with the meeting. At least one of the agents was involved in counterintelligence, according to the person. Trump suggested that he was continuing to work with FARA and DOJ on the matter, and was thus dumbfounded by the swarm of FBI agents that spent hours combing through materials Monday in Mar-a-Lago while Trump was away in Manhattan. But that cooperation by Trump gave agents the justification they needed to obtain their warrant. According to the Miami Herald, quote, federal agents were able to establish probable cause for the warrant because Trump and his lawyers had already turned over some classified documents that had been sought by the National Archives and Records Administration, the source said. Agents suspected that Trump was unlawfully holding other classified documents from his presidency in his private club and residence at Mar-a-Lago, which is the crux of the investigation led by the FBI and Justice Department in Washington, D.C. During Monday's search, FBI agents worked in, quote, taint teams while gathering and separating the alleged classified materials to ensure that none was privileged correspondence between Trump and his lawyers, which would be off-limits to investigators and prosecutors. The immediate political impact in the GOP was a rally to Trump's defense. Rich Lowry tweeted, quote, Trump is winning the FBI raid caucus going away. We'll learn more, but this is his best day in pursuit of the 2024 nomination in a long time. Robert Costa reported, 
some allies are urging him to speed up his decision on 2024 in the wake of this, but no one in GOP will challenge him now. Others are telling him to stay cool. On Fox News, Eric Trump, who said he informed his father of the search, said publicly for the first time that he now wanted his father to run for president again. House members, senators, 2022 nominees, and potential 2024 GOP presidential candidates flooded social media with condemnation of President Joe Biden, Merrick Garland, and the FBI in solidarity with Trump. But there was one corner of the GOP establishment notable in its restraint, Senate Republican leadership. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Whip John Thune, Republican Conference Chairman John Barrasso, Republican Policy Committee Chairman Roy Blunt, Vice Chairman of the Senate Republican Conference Joni Ernst, all refrained from tweeting about the search as of early this morning. That silence did not go unnoticed. On Fox News, Mark Levin attacked the Senate leadership for not speaking out. There was, however, one leadership exception, Republican Senatorial Committee Chairman Rick Scott. As for 2024 aspirants, Senators Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley didn't tweet, but Senator Ted Cruz, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem did. Republican candidates and groups, from Trump to the RNC to J.D. Vance, immediately used the search in fundraising appeals last night. Trump said when he called into an Alaska rally for Sarah Palin Monday night, quote, this was a strange day. Another Tuesday, another set of primaries across the U.S., and Politico's Zach Montalero, state politics reporter, is here to break down the races in Wisconsin. Zach, how are you? How's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Glad to hear it. Um, so let's start with the Republican gubernatorial primary. Uh, it's a common battle. We've seen this primary cycle. An establishment candidate who's flirted with election denialism and is endorsed by Pence against a Trump-backed outsider who fully embraces it. Uh, so what's going on? Yeah, so it's kind of a repeat of what we've seen over and over again. Uh, this time we have former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish running against Tim Michaels, who is a Trump-endorsed businessman. Uh, the interesting thing here is that, you know, if if you had asked this question a year ago, uh, Clayfish looked like the runaway nominee, you know, mm. going into this contest, it seemed that it was hers to lose. A couple other folks got in and didn't really shake anything up. But Michaels entered the race late uh, with a lot of his own money. He's bankrolling a lot of his own campaign. And then the Trump endorsement quickly turned it to a pretty competitive contest. That's really mm -hmm. a toss up heading into tonight. You know, like we said, it's kind of a common setup, right? Like the establishment candidate versus the MAGA outsider. Do you feel like the tides have shifted on that a little bit? Because I feel like a year ago, anyone that Trump backed might have be seen as like a go directly to go skip primary. But now it seems like it's getting a little tighter. You know, it depends on the state, right? Like in governor's races, especially, uh, it's been a real mixed bag for the former president. When he's tried to take on incumbents, think about um in Georgia, Brian Kemp, uh, he tried to primary him. He tried to primary Brad Little in Idaho. Uh, the Trump-backed primary challenger lost not once but twice, and that was a big deal. But then mm -hmm. we've seen over the last you know couple of months, Trump have a stronger sway over Republican primaries. Uh, Doug Mastriano is a good example of this. He was the Pennsylvania. He is the Pennsylvania Republican nominee kind of stormed in and he probably would have won without Trump's endorsement, mm. but Trump endorsed him at the last minute. And while there was an effort by some other Republicans in the race to consolidate in some anti Mastriano fashion that didn't work in Arizona, Carrie Lake, a former TV anchor who Trump backed really, really early won the nomination over a mm. candidate backed by Doug Ducey, the outgoing governor who just so happens to be the chair or co-chair of the Republican governor's association. 
So, you know, he, Trump had challenges taking down incumbent governors. Uh, but as far as picking a governor out of an open field or picking a governor candidate out of an open field, he had a much better record. Uh, let's move on to the uh, not actually a race anymore race, uh, the Democratic Senate primary to face Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Uh, a couple months ago, if I was going to talk to you about this, it looked like a Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes was headed into a tough election. But now everyone's dropped out. So it's kind of cleared the way for Barnes. Uh, what happened here? Yeah, it's pretty boring. Uh, you know, it <laughs> looks like it's going to be a competitive primary and now it's not. Um, all of his, his opponents kind of cleared the field. I think most interestingly was Alex Lazary, who was the son of one of the co-owners of the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, mm-hmm. safe to say, he's got a lot of money in his back pocket. He used some of that to fund his campaign, was running pretty hard, and then he pretty on a dime flipped the switch, ended his campaign. They, you know, are reporting from some of our colleagues who have really been following this race said that you know Lasley just didn't see the path for himself, and he mm-hmm. thought, why stick around? But which is admirable, I guess. Uh, it's something that candidates typically do. A lot of folks will run through the end, run through the tape, especially if they've committed, you know, seven figures of their own money. Mm. Lazary did not do that. So now Mandela Barnes, the state's lieutenant governor, is a basically the nominee. He still has to beat some nominal opponents, but it's basically the nominee to go up against Ron Johnson and what's going to be one of the more competitive Senate races this uh, November. Yeah, it seems like um, when it comes to Senate control in the next term, you know, Wisconsin's pretty high up on the list of whatever party kind of wins it. Seems like they'd have a good advantage for having controlled the Senate. Yeah, you know, it's still a good year to be uh, environment wise, at least, you know, setting aside candidate quality. It's a good year to be a Republican. Republicans mm-hmm. are competing in more states that Democrats than Democrats control and vice versa. But if there's a the most endangered Senate Republican incumbent, uh, not open seat, but incumbent is probably Ron Johnson. Um, you know, obviously Joe Biden won the state in 2020, very mm. narrowly, of course, but he won the state. Uh, you know, Tony Evers, who is also on the ballot this year, uh, won the governorship in 2018. He's a Democrat. So Democrats have, you know, uh, some re- very, very recent success in this state. Uh, but it's still anyone's ball game. you know, come November, right? It's hard to unseat an incumbent of any party it's a tough thing to do. And given just that right now, the fundamentals in the environment are better for Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, st- but still, it's going to be super, super competitive. Yeah. How's um, fundraising looking? I assume there's already been a lot of money thrown at this race. Yeah. You know, if you're a candidate in one of these races, you, of course, are going to raise a bunch of money. And Barnes, our colleagues have uh, reported, you know, kind of got a boost once he kind of cleared the field a bit. But both of these folks will be uh, pretty well bankrolled and just the outside money, too. It's almost quaint at this point what candidates Mm. raise. And I say that a little bit facetiously because Democratic Senate candidates in particular will raise a lot of money. They just have a much more well-oiled small dollar donor machine than Republicans Mm. do. But the outside money flowing into Wisconsin to pick your state, Georgia, Arizona, uh, states that will have not just Senate races, but governor races as well that will attract, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars each, it's going to be unfathomable. I've covered politics for a few cycles now, and I've covered campaign finance for a few cycles. And it's just been, it feels like exponential growth cycle over cycle that this amount of money being spent on these races almost feels like monopoly money, except that it's, Mm. it's real and it's just drowning out the airwaves, basically. Politico's Zach Montalero, state politics reporter. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Here's what's up in Washington today, starting with the White House. At 10 a.m. Eastern, President Joe Biden will sign the Chips and Science Act into law and deliver remarks on the South Lawn, 
with Vice President Kamala Harris, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, and OMB Director Shalanda Young in attendance. At 2 p.m., Biden will sign the ratification of Finland and Sweden to join NATO and deliver remarks in the East Room, with Vice President Harris also in attendance. Press Secretary Queen Jean-Pierre will brief at 2.40 p.m. The House and the Senate are out today. All right. For more news, what's breaking in D.C. right now, subscribe to the Playbook newsletter. That's at politico.com slash playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Rogu Manavalan. Have a good Tuesday. We'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. Facebook is building tools to enhance safety and security. Over 40 million people are using Facebook's privacy checkup each month. That's nearly 60 times the population of Washington, D.C. Learn more about the work ahead at facebook.com forward slash action.